0: Good afternoon and welcome to The Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter and uh, welcome to our show this afternoon and let's begin today's show with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. all of you wherever you are listening to this show around the world whether it's on the internet or live here on Planet FM. As I said my name is Father Anthony Sumich a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St Peter and working here in the Auckland Diocese in New Zealand. uh, We have just gone into uh, our second bout of government enforced lockdowns after some cases of coronavirus appeared after some hundred days without any uh, community transition uh, transmission and so we have are very unfortunately uh, playing these political games whether or not it is leaning one way scientifically or leaning another way medically or leaning another way theoretically or whatever it is but unfortunately the result of these things is that people are going to be cut off from the sacraments and this can never be a good thing so we must always look at these difficulties uh, in the world from a supernatural point of view and as far as all of us are concerned we must be in the state of grace that is the most important thing that any of us can have in our lives Uh, that great gift that almighty God gives us a sharing in his own life so that we are in the state of grace and therefore our soul is pleasing to God and we need to eventually die in that state of grace so this becomes the problem for each and every one of us is that when we are in a degree of lockdown we're unable to wreck the fire situation if we fall as and find ourselves falling into mortal sin and unfortunately not being able to receive communion makes it even tougher for a lot of you so kia kaha uh, kia maya kia manuanui all of you out there and uh so just by way of trying to keep in contact with your spiritual life. I can tell you all that if you keep an eye on our website here uh, in New Zealand, our website is fssp.nz. We'll keep updates about the situation here in Auckland, but also our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So you can see what um, we are able to do during this lockdown. Unfortunately, we as priests have been stopped from going into rest homes and hospitals which is a, a, a terrible shame, especially when you consider if someone is dying. They're dying, and so a priest going into a rest home like that is not going, or a, a hospital is not going to endanger that person's life if they are dying. And so the necessity of receiving those sacraments being denied them is a true travesty, one that we need to pray a lot over. So uh, we can tell you that uh, our masses are now live, and they are being streamed on the web page livemass.net. So you can find the details on either our website or Facebook page. But if you just want to um, have a look now, you can find them at Corona, so Corona.livemass.net. And when you go to that page at stcorona.livemass.net, you can then see a number of different parishes around the world. And the one you click is St. Anne's in Auckland, New Zealand. Our masses are at 8 a.m. daily during the lockdown where nobody is able to come to the church due to the national government and uh, diocesan regulations. Um, All masses are in private, but we here at the Apostle that we continue to pray for you every day of our daily divine office. And our masses, our mass that we offer every day is at 8 a.m. New Zealand, Auckland time, uh, 8 a.m. And so those masses are live. Every day, uh, If someone is able, depending on, on what degree of lockdown we have, if someone's able to make their own way here to St. Anne's, whether it's by walking or by bike or whatever it is to get here and you are wanting to have the sacraments, then you request those. And as a priest uh, of the Catholic Church, of course, we can't deny anybody confession or even uh, the reception of communion, providing that we have met government um, standards of Hygiene and cleanliness and distancing and so on and so forth. So uh, if you are wanting uh, to receive especially the, the sacrament of confession, then you're more than welcome. And even if we do go to a level four lockdown, which is very strict, you can always just confess through the door of the church um, to keep those that distancing and all set up um, inside the church and um, you would only have to kneel outside the church so there'd be absolutely no contact whatsoever and we can keep those spaces clean so just to keep you in the in the loop there we do want to um, have people in the state of grace as i said before it is the single most important state that we need to be throughout our lives And um, in other news, of course, uh, the Mass that we were to be having this weekend for the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, well, we'll still be having that Mass at 8 o'clock on Saturday. But unfortunately, since the Church is closed under the orders of the Bishop, uh, the Mass would be in private. and. And that's a real sadness because we were planning a big event at St. Paul's College where we had been having our Sunday Masses. So just keep an eye on the website, keep an eye on the Facebook page to see any updates as they tend to change each day. But it just appears now that um, it's only going to get more stringent with the lockdowns. However, the other news that I can bring you is the very good news. And again, this is very much subject to the situation with regards to COVID in New Zealand, that is a very good news of the uh, impending ordinations of our deacon and subdeacon here in Auckland, and uh, the news that Bishop Dennis Brown has retired, Bishop of Auckland and retired Bishop of Hamilton Diocese has very generously agreed to help us out of our fix with these two young men unable to get to Australia to have their ordinations, which have now been delayed a couple of times in over a number of months, that um, COVID restrictions, <clears throat> notwithstanding, that if we are able to go back to public masses or semi-public masses, that he will perform the ordinations uh, to the diaconate of Brennan Boyce and to the priesthood of Reverend Mr. Gilbride, Roger Gilbride. Uh, this will, is planned. At the moment, there's planned for the 3rd of October, Saturday, the 3rd of October. And that will be at St. Ben's Church in Newton in Auckland so uh, the time we are hoping for is 10:30 in the morning but the monsignor farmer of st ben's has graciously has said that we're able to use that church and so we're hoping for 10:30 in the morning so please keep these young men in your prayers they've been delayed so many times and depending on the situation in new zealand and who knows we we just pray that by october we're able to be lifted a little bit there's a lot of preparation and practices and physical preparation that needs to get done before then so with COVID restrictions it makes it very hard to make these preparations so I ask uh, for all of your prayers for these young men and hopefully we will be having a traditional ordination in New Zealand it would it will be a low mass setting as Bishop Dennis Brown has not really celebrated the Latin mass since 1969 when the new mass came in although he was for seven years prior to that Having been ordained in 1962, I'm uh, very familiar with the Latin Mass, but it still takes a long time uh, to remember all those small movements and gestures uh, that a priest would have to do whilst celebrating the most holy sacrifice of the Mass in the traditional form brought to us here in New Zealand, of course, by Bishop Pompelier So the magnificent tradition handed on the Bishop Pompelier and continued with the work of the Fraternity of St. Peter here in Auckland to the glory of God and the salvation of souls. So that's the good news that we've got here. And uh, without any further ado, I want to carry on with our history of the Catholic Church as we have been walking through over these last months and years. We have been in the 13th century, if you recall, from listening last week, and um, the very interesting events surrounding the Constant toing and froing with the emperor of Europe and the Hohenstaufen um, battles with the papacy, and also at the same time the emergence of the great Saint Thomas Aquinas and his uh, incredible teaching and writings on theology coming out of uh, Paris, as it were, and and also the emergence of the Dominicans as a real force in the teaching arm um, of the church. So when I finished off last week, uh, we had been speaking a lot about um, the Pope and the uh, situation in England specifically with regards to Henry III. So at the time we finished it up, we were in about September um, of the year 1258. Pope Alexander IV, though he was distressed by the Reformers' unceremonious removal of the foreigner, so-called foreigner Aimer de Valence, Bishop of Winchester, declared himself willing to wait for further evidence before taking any punitive action while insisting that Aimer be accorded an opportunity to defend himself and continuing to press for payment of the funds for Sicily. Henry III accepted the reformer Hugh Bigot as justiciar and the honest John of Crackenhall as treasurer. And then during a 10-day period at the end of October, the council of 15 appointed 19 new sheriffs in 28 shires across England. The reformers had overwhelming support. When imperial claimant Richard of Cornwall returned to England in February of 1259, in response to his brother's urgent summons, he was not allowed into the country until he took an oath to support the baronial reform. So in that same February of that very very year, the reform movement was greatly broadened when the Council of Fifteen, led by Simon de Montfort, accepted after acrimonious debate that the same legal principles must be observed in judging the disputes of barons with their tenants as in judging the disputes of barons with the king. This demonstrates the depth and the sincerity of this reform movement proving that it did not serve the interests of the great barons alone. After all, they were putting themselves under the same uh, microscope in this situation. The substantial opposition among the barons to broadening the reform shows that the scope and impact of this action was very well understood. Simon de Montfort's support for it shows what his principles were. Embodied in an ordinance, this critically important measure was published in March of 1259. The Earl of Gloucester, the second most powerful of the barons, seemed to have been amongst its opponents. At this time, he initiated contacts with Henry's son, Edward, later to bear evil fruit. So we can tell what happens when there is this personal will to keep oneself powerful and keep oneself above Uh, or outside of the law and, and the final result is always going to be something that will end up to the detriment of other peoples and especially to one's own soul. In October of 1259, the provisions of Westminster, essentially a codification of the baronial reform, were presented to Parliament as amendments and additions to the Magna Carta. One of their chief goals was to secure fair judicial hearings for all freemen and to protect them from reprisals for, for bringing suit. Another goal was to supervise much more closely the administration of justice and the treasury. Within a year, shire courts were to begin electing four knights who in turn would choose the sheriff with the approval of the barons of the exchequer. In contrast to the formal procedure of appointment by the king alone, often on the recommendation of favourites, Circuit judges were designed to hear appeals from arbitrary actions or decision of sheriffs. The provisions of Westminster were vigorously implemented within a month. On November 19, Justitia Hugh Bigod met with the new sheriffs and four Shire Knights who were given authority to nominate sheriffs until the election procedures for the four prescribed by the provisions should be in place. Circuit judges began hearing appeals cases under the provisions of Westminster in January of 1260. Now, as I said last week, when we consider, this is in the 13th century, and those of us who look back in the Middle Ages, at the Middle Ages, as some sort of crazy period of just powerful nobles and kings and people who had all the money and the power and the land just lording it over everyone else who was a peasant we start to realize that this was absolutely not the case yes there were abuses but there are lots of abuses today when we have these enormous judicial systems but obviously these over seven centuries ago there was a a real effort being made to build a society that was based on very just principles although there were always going to be problems. In November of 1259, Henry III left for France for the formal signing of the treaty between France and England. On December the fourth, he was in no hurry to return. In January, he wrote to Hubigod, regent in his absence, that he wished the first of the triennial parliaments for 1260, scheduled to meet in February, to be delayed. Now, suspecting that Henry was planning resistance to the reform, Simon called for Parliament to meet regardless of the king's wishes. But Bigod delayed, hoping the king would return soon. In March, Henry wrote to Bigod, ordering him to bring an army to London by April 25, summoning eight earls and 99 barons and their feudal service, but not including Simon de Montfort. Bigod obeyed. On April 11, Henry wrote an open letter reviewing his reign and rights, declaring that the proposal to hold a parliament without his consent showed that a state of rebellion existed and that he would come with an army to restore order. Simon tried but failed to persuade the Council of Fifteen to oppose Henry's return. And on April 23, the king landed with 300 French knights and the Earl of Gloucester by his side. Richard of Cornwall mediated between the two sides so that there was no immediate clash. Henry had to send most of his troops back to France. St. Louis sent one of his bishops to assist Simon when Henry attempted to put him on trial and he was acquitted by Parliament after a committee of bishops and the Council of Fifteen refused to indict him. But Henry's tactics had effectively divided the baronial reformers in particular by setting the Earl of Gloucester and Simon, the Earl of Leicester, at loggerheads. In October, the Barons had let Henry replace Hugh as Judiciar and Henry of Wingham as Chancellor with more compromising men. Honest Treasurer John of Crickhall had died and been replaced by more malleable men. In March, Henry judged that the Barons had weakened sufficiently for him to be able to denounce the rule of the Council of Fifteen as conducted for the private advantage of the barons, not for the benefit of the kingdom, and wrote to the Pope asking for absolution from his oath to maintain the provisions of Oxford, which he denounced by name, demanding his full royal power back. Pope Alexander IV, who had been angered by the refusal of the barons in 1259 to obey his order to restore Aymar de Valence to the see of Winchester, on April 14 did absolve Henry III from his oath to maintain the provisions of Oxford on the grounds that it was extorted from him by force on pretext of reforming the realm. On May the 7th the Pope directed the Archbishop of Canterbury to excommunicate anyone refusing to accept Henry III's full authority as king. 18 days later Pope Alexander IV died at Viterbo. His last actions regarding the situation in England cloud the memory of an otherwise admirable pontificate. For the baronial reform movement had been one of the most high-minded and truly Christian undertakings of the age, despite the inevitable admixture of personal greed and ambition. No papal decree could cancel it completely, but only escalate the struggle over it, at least so long as Simon de Montfort was alive, and this is exactly what happened. On the other hand... Henry was an exceptionally pious king and the popes had regarded themselves as bearing a special responsibility to protect the King of England ever since King John's spectacular gesture of handing the whole kingdom over to the Pope and receiving it back as a fife. The political theory of the age had no place for a parliament acting against the will of a king to reform the government and Henry had now made it very clear that the reform was against his will. Now, just as a sort of footnote, that Simon de Montfort has in, had envisaged a new political theory for England bearing at least some substantial resemblance to the modern English system of government has been scornfully dismissed by many modern historians. Yet the record of his actions and his suggestions on more than one occasion that Parliament should act without the King or even against him without any attempt to support another royal claimant which was always, almost always the form taken in in that age by political movements against the king, suggests that the scoffing is somewhat overhasty. Simon may not have formulated his doctrine in the manner of a, let's say, St. Thomas Aquinas, but there's a good reason to believe that he had some visualisation of a kind of government the world had never seen before. Certainly the reform he led in England was unique, unparalleled elsewhere in Europe and laid the foundations for the special authority in Parliament that distinguished England from all other European countries during much of its subsequent history. So, with the Pope dead, the small conclave that met in May 1261 to elect Pope Alexander IV's successor soon deadlocked. There were only eight cardinals. This meant that under the two-thirds requirement, six votes were required to elect the Pope. There is evidence that this large majority might have been obtained uh, obtained for the Dominican Cardinal Hugh of Saint-Cher, or for the Cistercian Cardinal John Tollett of England. But both men refused the pontifical office, often the right men to do it if they were refusing. With no other cardinal able to get six votes, the conclave had to look elsewhere, though they hesitated long before doing so eventually. On August 29, they unanimously elected James of Troy, capital of the province of Champagne in France, a learned and able man whom Pope Innocent IV had made Bishop of Verdun and Pope Alexander IV had made Patriarch of Jerusalem. James took the papal name Urban IV. Now, James had been appointed Patriarch of Jerusalem back in 1255, but had not reached Accra until five years later. During his year in the ever-embattled Middle East, he had tried to heal the endless, vicious, and often petty disputes among the Christian merchants in the Levant, particularly the most bitter rivals, the Genoese and the Venetians. He had also faced the difficult question of the proper policy towards the Mongols once again on the warpath. Hulagu, younger brother of the new great Khan Mangu, had surged into Iran during 1256 and had taken and destroyed the area of the dreaded assassins of, at Alamut. In February 1258, Hulagu had taken Baghdad, killing the Abbasid Caliph, who, though now much limited in his political and military power, was still regarded as, by most Orthodox, Orthodox Muslims as their religious leader. Hulagu's ferocious warriors had sacked Baghdad for 40 days and killed 80,000 people, taken away immense treasure and left the great Muslim city a barely surviving shadow, which took 40 years to regain one-tenth of its former size. You can imagine the devastation. Though Christian optimists hoping to convert the Mongols and make crusaders out of them made much of the fact that the mother of Mangu and Hulagu was a Christian, Her faith seemed to have made little impression on her sons, who resembled much more of their grandfather, Genghis Khan. In May of 1258, Mangu, at the other end of Asia, had launched an all-out invasion of southern China, then ruled by the highly-cultured Sung Dynasty. In September 1259, Hulagu had invaded Syria, and in the winter of 1260, his Mongols had overrun it, taking Aleppo and Damascus. But by then, Mangu had died in China. As when Genghis Khan's son, Ogadai, died in 1241, the Mongol leaders had to return to their distant homeland to choose a succession. Kublai and Arikbuka contested the succession and Kublai prevailed, but was never able to exercise power west of Mongolia. When Patriarch James, the Pope-to-be, arrived in Palestine, the Egyptians, under Kutuz and Baybars were already marching on Syria in a furious counterattack against the weakened Mongols, commanded in Hulagu's absence by a Christian general, Kitbuga. Kitbuga was supported by the Crusader king Bohemond VI of Antioch and the Christian king Hittum I of Armenia, but opposed by the remnant of the Crusader kingdom at Accra whose leaders allowed the Egyptian army to cross its territory as it marched to confront the Mongols. The advice of the newly arrived Patriarch James would certainly have played a significant role in this decision and may well have been in favour of it, though we do not know for sure. On September 3rd in 1260, the Mongols had suffered their first decisive defeat since the initial appearance of Genghis Khan at the Battle of Ain Jalut. It was mainly due to the superb military abilities of the Mamluk generals Baybars of Egypt. But Baybars were as ruthless as the Mongols themselves. Within a month of his victory, he had murdered his sovereign Kutuz and become Sultan of Egypt. Because Antioch and Armenia had helped the Mongols, Baybars concluded that the Crusader kingdoms were likely to support Mongol invasions in the future and must be eliminated. In fact, There was no reason to expect that in the long run the Mongols would be any more friendly to the Christians than the Muslims had been. And by the end of the century, most of those living in the Middle East had become Muslim themselves. So the newly elected Pope Urban IV drew at once the needed lessons from the difficulties of the conclave that had finally chosen him. There were too few cardinals. During the first year of his pontificate, he appointed no less than 14 new cardinals, including three future popes. Half were Italians and half were Frenchmen. Urban IV was widely acclaimed as a patron of learning. He was certainly a patron of St. Thomas Aquinas. Just ten days after his consecration as Pope, the Dominican Provincial Chapter meeting at Orvieto, where he resided, assigned Thomas indefinitely to the Priory at Orvieto, where he lived and worked during most of Urban's four-year pontificate in the dedication of his commentary on St. Matthew's Gospel to Pope Urban IV, Thomas spoke of the studious zeal which had led Urban to ask him to write this commentary. And I quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, I submit it to be examined and corrected by the decisions of your supreme authority. It is the joint fruit of your solicitude and of my obedience. Deign to accept it so that just as the order to write it came from you, the final appreciation of its value may be pronounced by you as rivers return to the source where they have sprung, unquote. Urban IV also requested Thomas to write a book delineating and explaining the erroneous doctrines of the Greek church. Just a month before Urban was elected Pope, Michael Palliogolos The Greek Emperor of Nicaea, who claimed the Byzantine imperial crown, had been surprised to find a small army of his regaining Constantinople from the Moribund Latin imperial regime. His army was admitted under or over the poorly guarded walls by sympathisers within the city, while most of the small Latin garrison and the guarding Venetian fleet were away, trying to take some islands in the Black Sea. Michael Palliogos had no idea the reconquest would be so easy. The Greek recovery of Constantinople and restoration of the Byzantine Empire had made the question of religious reunion with the separated Greek church more urgent. It appears to have been during this period that Thomas Aquinas began his extraordinary practice of writing several books at once. Even if he had occasionally done so earlier... He had to do it on a grand scale during the year 1263, when there is no doubt that he was simultaneously writing the Summa Contra Gentiles, his book Against the Errors of the Greeks, Contra errores Gricorum, and his commentary on St. Matthew's Gospel. But for all his learning and experience, Urban IV was not a decisive pope. His letters and actions regarding the restored Byzantine Empire during the years 1262 and 1263 are unfortunately redolent with indecision. On the one hand, he longed to restore the unity of Christendom through a firm acknowledgement of papal authority by the Byzantine Emperor Michael Palaiologos, and on the other hand, he preferred to work with leaders he knew better, particularly the French, French Prince Charles of Anjou, whom he hoped to place on the throne of Sicily in South Italy and whom everybody knew had great ambitions in Greece. Michael's first letter, which reached the Pope probably in June 1262, called for reconciliation and peace with the West. And with a promise that the Greeks would forgive the injuries they'd suffered from the Latins, a pointed reminder that these injuries had not been forgotten. But said nothing specific about full religious submission to the Pope or the apparent doctrinal differences that had developed between the Greeks and Latins. The Pope surely knew by this time that Emperor Michael had ordered his young colleague John Lascaris, the legitimate emperor, blinded on Christmas Day of 1261, and that his own patriarch had excommunicated him for it. Such an act did not encourage trust in Michael Paliogolos. So with time running out today, we're going to pull up stops. Uh, with that and let's remind each and every one of you about our information on our web page especially within these difficult times of masses and no masses and open churches and closed churches so look at our website fssp.nz or our facebook page fssp auckland and we hope to have you back here next week so may god bless you all and uh, we hope to have you back listening once again next week and god bless stay safe